just now. This guy never saw the difference. He is a um, hostage negotiator. The most important thing I learned from this book is I should not be a hostage negotiator. Very stressful. <laughs> the end. The end. Scene. <laughs> and I'm keeping my job. <laughs> Thank you, Chris Voss. Well, I like it because I think this is an example of how to communicate with skill and influence. Yeah, and without being a bully. Exactly. Like we it's, we need we need alternatives. Without it's like communicating in a way that is delightful. That draws it's very magnetic. It draws people to you. It makes people want to do what you want. And on one hand that can sound manipulative, but it's not when you have a noble purpose. When you have this purpose that is going to be better for everybody in the end, then it's, it's not selfish. It's not manipulative. It's noble and it makes the world better. So the more people who learn how to communicate with this type of skill and influence, irrespective of if you're negotiating with a terrorist or a patient, the skills make you a more powerful, more effective person. Yeah, totally. And like, I always get reminded, I don't know how many people know this, like, Communication is fraught with misunderstanding. Like even the word tree to me means something different than tree to you, depending upon where you grew up. And like, if you've had trauma with trees, like <laughs> e even word, like even words, right. Yeah. have different meanings when we try to like communicate and it's amazing. Yeah. It goes right as many times as it does. And then we're like always surprised when it goes poorly. It's like, it should go poorly more often than it does. Mm -hmm. really. we, yeah. We really lack precision in the way we communicate with one another. This is especially problematic in healthcare because what is the number one reason why we get complications? It's some form of communication breakdown. Right. I think statistically speaking, that th that's at the heart of most complications, sentinel events, whatever. It's like a communication breakdown. And lo lawsuits too, right? Yeah. Like we didn't care so much about the complication, but it was how it was handled. Yeah. Totally. I have this like, in the future, we'll all just like plug into your brain and then we'll just nod at each other and then we'll go. I know. <laughs> Well, that'll be possible because somebody's going to figure out how to record us in that manner. So the whole conversation can happen just telepathically. And that will be the new podcast. That'll be the new podcast. I, I liked the his idea of like keeping people talking, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, does this apply in surgery? Because like we don't have much time. I can't just keep talking to you. But it's like, dude, they're hostage negotiators with like people who want to kill people. It's not like they have tons of time either. And there's usually a deadline. Yep. It's not like they're just chatting, like kibitzing at the neighborhood bingo parlor for fun. Yeah. You know? Like, and to keep people talking mm -hmm. was an interesting tip, I thought. I think it's yeah. reflective of like an open posture with people. <clears throat> you know? Mm -hmm. Like instead of having a closed off posture with people, it's an open posture for, pe for people. Keeping people talking is very invitational. Yeah. It makes you kind of look like a superstar. Mm -hmm. uh, one of his tricks, which like, I, I can't remember all of them, but one of his tricks is like to repeat the 
last couple of words that somebody said. And it's like so simple and it keeps them talking. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a urologist who runs a urology group and he is like a, he has studied this book. He's, he remembers all of this book and Mm -hmm. I'll see him use like, cause I know enough now that I'll see him use the techniques in the Facebook group. He'll just like reply, like, OR time, question mark. (laughs) You know, he'll like repeat the last thing that somebody posted and then he'll get them to say more in the Facebook group. Yeah. Exactly what you're doing. And it's brilliant. Yeah. I negotiated something recently. I was kind of proud of myself. What'd you do? I, um, I just signed a contract with the surgicalist group that staffs acute care surgeons nationwide. But if anybody's seen Virgin River on Netflix, it's like this charming town that is like a fake town in Northern California. It's actually filmed in Vancouver. So it gives you a kind of an idea of the landscape. But <clears throat> this little town is in the base of the Sierra Nevada. It's called Grass Valley. It's super charming and beautiful. And it's like my kind of town. It's like my kind of environment. Anyway, so I secured a job with this company. That's a little bit of context. And it's going to require a lot of travel. And it's a per diem job. So for per diem jobs, you know, you may have like a little bit more daily pay, but you don't have benefits and there's no uh, travel expenses included. And I said, well, this is going to require a lot of travel. How am I supposed to do that? (laughs) They said, how about a signing bonus? How about, well, we can't pay you a, we can't, we cannot add like per company policy. We can't add to the per diem rate, but how about a signing bonus of $20,000? Would that cover your travel for a year? Yes. In fact, it would, it would cover my travel for a year. That is awesome. Done. <laughs> it Dude, it's like, it's so, it's so amazing that like, you, you get somebody else to solve your problem for you mm-hmm. by asking that question. How am I supposed to do that? Yeah. It's so good. The other thing I really liked about this is like, he just figured this out on his own. I know. Like, this is just like a scrappy dude who like got his boots on the ground and then needed to figure it out. All right. And wanted to like figure it out in a repeatable, successful way. And then he goes to Harvard and Harvard's like, yeah, we're, we're thinking we're figuring this out. And he's like, yeah, I'm ahead of you. That's a really good point and an interesting parallel to coaching uh, because something tells me that hostage negotiation is not exactly a regulated industry, like maybe like loosely, but also coaching is not a regulated industry. And what he what he figured out was through a lot of trial and error because he did it wrong. He admits that. Right. He admits that he wasn't really like effective. And he learned through his own critical thinking and trial and error and gathering data from all these instances, you know, and, and I guess there's a parallel to surgery too, although that is a regulated industry, but um, there's a way in which we can confront not knowing. And that's scientifically through gathering data, making an assessment, adjusting, and then trying again. It's like, how many runs at the slip and slide are you going to take over the course of your lifetime? Because we get unlimited runs at the slip and slide. 
And he built this thing that is so highly effective using his brain and the scientific method. I'm like arguing. I think that's kind of what he did. And that's exactly what you can do in coaching where, you know, you can go to a coaching school and the things you learn may or may not be effective. But then when your boots on the ground and you're talking to real humans and you're figuring out, oh my gosh, these are the things that affect people uniquely and commonly. And these are the interventions that seem to work and really help people become more effective. And these are the interventions that keep people stuck. Yep. And then it's like taking, taking a couple of steps back to be like, what are the themes? How can we make this? Yeah. Just and through critical thinking and through not beating yourself up when you don't get it right. And when you don't get it right, just say like, oh my gosh, I didn't get it right then. Like admit it, like own your stuff when you don't get it right. And then be like, okay, but I'm going to use the information I learned there and I'm going to try again. And then for surgery, maybe the stakes are a little different. Um, but I think we could use a similar sort of uh, um, protocol, if you will, for handling when things don't go right. Mm-hmm. Totally. I love it. Um, he was talking about the power of like open-ended questions, which I thought were like, is again, everything is so simple, but when put together, instead of like closing people down to like a no or a yes, keep them, keep them talking. Uh, it was the things I wrote down was how am I supposed to do that? Which is like the powerhouse statement mirroring. So you say the last three words keep them talking labeling the pain mm-hmm. so like seeing understanding where they're coming from making sure you got that right open-ended question was also good and I always forget if you're supposed to say like the why's why's and how's or something like that labeling the pain is really important <clears throat> um That's a really useful thing with patient interactions is labeling people's pain. It's like getting out of your own egocentric view of the world and looking at the world through the view of somebody else. And when I think in my experience, one of the things that's universal among humans is being seen and heard. Mm -hmm. And it's just simple. It requires like little, literally no energy to take 30 seconds, maybe a minute to label somebody's pain in a way that they appreciate that they're seen and heard. Totally. I love it. He was talking about five stages of crisis negotiation. It was active listening, empathy, rapport, influence, and behavioral change. Like if that's not physician patient relationship. It totally is. It totally is. And that it's as Carl Rogers proposed, the only real change can come when a therapist accepts the client as he or she is. Mm-hmm. Which was brilliant. I'll, I'll probably, like, I'm keeping this book and I'm probably will have to read it yearly. Cause I, yeah. I get good and then I get out of practice. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. 
But I think surgeons are so, we're so bad at communicating because number one, we're never taught. Like we're smart people. We're just never taught. And then we're always like our endpoint or our, like we want to get the thing done. We want to schedule the case. We want to, I think it's like, it's a, a time scarcity thing a lot in our failure to communicate. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of like, we think we're right. Maybe yeah. is in there. I think so. And this is in no way to um, provide judgment or act in a judgmental way. I think it's just the way we were groomed to be. And um, I think this is a form of self-leadership. And again, like getting back to sort of an egocentric way of mode, like an egocentric modus operandi, where we're more concerned about how things are impacting us, our day, our thing, our this, our that, um, and shifting to more of an outward point of view. And it's not to say we never do that, but like typically when we're in the middle of something that's super frustrating, it's because of some way in which our day is getting jacked up, you know? Um, but, oh my gosh, there was one other point I was going to make there and I just forgot what it was. Oh, I know, I know. So Pete and I, Pete, my husband and I were having this conversation about this and the communication specifically and the differences between surgery and aviation. It's like the topic of all of our conversations, right? And I just said, where, when you're like learning how to fly a plane, when do you learn how to be a leader? Like, when do you learn how to communicate and how to be a leader? And he's like, the first day. It's just is something. He, is that, he like, why is she asking me, where's the air in the room? That's exactly right. That is exactly the way he was like looking at me as if I had three heads. He's like, he didn't even understand the question, actually. I had to ask it a couple different ways. No shit. Yeah. And, and he, he said, it's so essential to the functioning of an air crew that from the, from the very beginning, it's baked into their training, their grooming, their culture. And, uh, I just find that so fascinating how the industries are really similar on a number of different levels and the stakes are really similar as far as like human life is concerned. Um, and like they have protocols in place to communicate in within an air crew, like there's a protocol. And so if there's a disruptive pilot, there's a protocol for how to handle that. And it's, it's like, we don't have any of that for disruptive surgeons or whatever. Um, and even last night, I'm kind of getting off topic here, but I'll, I'll circle back. Um, we were talking about, I was, I was trying, I was writing a document for some coaching thing. And I was trying to draw these parallels between surgery and aviation and coaching, as far as like an arc, you know, like a mission briefing, the, the takeoff and climb, then the cruising altitude, and then the descent and landing, and then the debrief. And um, anyway, I forgot how we got on this topic, but he was talking about how in their mission briefing, one of the things that's included is 
like everybody has to check in and say, are you okay? Are you safe to fly this mission? And they're encouraged to tell the truth. Like it's actually frowned upon to not be honest because everybody's safety is so contingent on everybody being well for the mission. And I was like, you mean people don't get mad at you if you don't show up for your mission? And he's like, well, there's a few outliers, but they're definitely the exception. That's how like different. And I know I kind of got away from the communication, but the point is, is that it's all baked into their industry and it is all definitely ingredients left out of our cooking process. Yeah. It's just, it's such a different culture. Like, I don't know if we've commodified surgery or what it is, but like, if you don't have a pilot that's good to fly or a crew, like you don't fly. Yeah. You're like, yeah, it's a bummer. We'll deal with it being a bummer, but like we don't fly. In surgery, like canceling a surgery because somebody's tired or unwell or they've been working 36 hours, it doesn't happen. It's totally different than flying a plane in that sense. I know, but both industries are commodified and we've all been there in the airport where the flight got canceled for whatever reason. And we're like, ah, shit. And people are inconvenienced and they hate it and they complain, but every, the world keeps turning. Yeah. The pilot doesn't take a 10% pay cut for his Google scores. And he's not shamed or she is not shamed for it, you know? You think it's yeah. because we are more like military based? I think surgery has a lot of that military history. And so we do see leadership, but the leadership we see is like, there is a leader, you're not it. What the leader says is, you know, how it goes. And your job is to like stay quiet until you become the leader and tell everybody what to do. That's an interesting point of view. And I was a surgeon in the military, and you were right. The leader was always a nurse. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was never the one in charge, even though, even though I was supposed to be the leader of the OR, there was always like a nurse who was ranked higher than me. It was very frustrating, but, um, I think, well, I have a pioma about this and by pioma, P-I-O-M-A is pull it out of my ass. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> Has anybody seen the Nick? That show? No. It is really good. It's it's about medicine at the turn of the 20th century in um, New York. And I think it's supposed to be modeled after what's like a fictional version of the main hospital that was like the that early hospital in New York. I forget the hospital. Do you remember Kelly? Anyway, but I think what it's really modeled after is um the Johns Hopkins crew, the, the four guys who like modern, like basically invented modern surgery in America. Halstead like at all. Yes. Halstead at all. Um, where they were making rapid advances and using themselves as experiments for cocaine and whatnot, and then ended up basically being high just like it's completely easy to work three days in a row and ignore hunger, ignore fatigue, ignore a full bladder and all of that when you're coked up and 
making medical history, you know, it's like a complete ride. Um, but I, that's what I think our current model is based on. That's my pioma. I a hundred percent agree. <laughs> it's, well, it's also based on, you know, a little bit is that all of these male surgeons, cause there were no females had significant home help. Mm-hmm. And so they could just be gone all the time and like kiss the kids on Sunday. And I'm, I'm being a little bit stereotypical, but I think that's why so many people are suffering now is because I just saw this amazing Instagram post. It was like, current women are suffering because they got told they can do everything that anybody else can. And they're still trying to do all the home stuff too. And like, it's, it's drowning them. And it's like, Halstead was not at home taking care of <laughs> elderly mothers or children. But if I were high on cocaine, I could do it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think you can't get Adderall in this country anymore? <clears throat> Like it's literally sold out. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, there's big Adderall shortages because of, there's online, there's online clinics now yeah. with minimal oversight and you can just get some. Yeah. I'm afraid I've like veered us off course from the book, but they're pro it's probably all yeah. related to communication <laughs> in some way. Like we have to become our own negotiator for our own desires. Like women's desires have been irrelevant to society forever, right? But they're mm -hmm. still there. They've just been smashed down and smashed down and smashed down, but they're still there. And so then when we start complaining about stuff, that's like the voice of our desire erupting from this oppression. And now we have to negotiate <clears throat> for our own desires and we should, mm -hmm. right? Like, well, maybe not. We should, we can, mm -hmm. it's allowed. Yeah. I think, well, I think it's a learning. You have to learn how you're, we're not going to just be good at it. Yeah. Because we didn't get trained to do it. Right. So it might be awkward and feel uncomfortable and, oh my gosh, asking, how am I supposed to do that? Feels very scary. Yeah. Yeah. But then you can be like, at least this isn't a hostage negotiation situation. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I feel like it is though. Like, it's just maybe not. <clears throat> like you're the hostage. Exactly. <clears throat> and you become your own hostage negotiator. Yeah. And I think typically when we negotiate for our own desires that means we're living like in with the like to the fullest extent of what makes us who we really are like we have desires for a reason right they're there so when we honor them and we're living to the fullest extent of who we really are that's better for the world the whole world benefits from us living fully like that and you'll find these people these people exist. I I, th I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I think I'm one of these people now. Yeah. So I was doing a surgery training and I met another surgeon who was living her life toward the absolute fullest, doing exactly what she wants to do. And like the glow that comes out of her because mm -hmm. she's crystal clear. She totally knows what she's going to put up with and she knows what she's not going to put up with. And it's like attractive as hell to watch it. Isn't it? 
It's so awesome. <clears throat> and then you're like, oh, most people aren't living like that. No, but think about the outcomes for her patients, how much better they probably are. Mm-hmm. Because she's un- she's not distracted by all this other shit. Yeah. And the outcomes for her. Exactly. She's happy. She's happy. And look at how she can. I don't I, I hesitate to use the word productive, but it's really true. Like, it doesn't matter if you're being productive in writing a romance novel or being productive in curing breast cancer. It doesn't matter what you're being productive in. But when you are contributing in a way that is meaningful to you at that level, everybody wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, including you. Yeah. It's just like when you finally become the person where you're like, oh, I think I'm fully living my life, how it, I'm, I'm supposed to be living my life. Mm-hmm. You, then you realize how many other people aren't. I know. It becomes intolerable to see people disempowered. It becomes intolerable. Mm-hmm. I agree. Oh my gosh. Are you drinking athletic greens? I think those are disgusting. I think it tastes a little chocolatey and a little fruity. They yeah. sent me this. This is free. They want to sponsor my podcast. That's cool. So I'm getting it down. Like Andrew Huberman has an athletic greens AG1 sponsor. Yeah. So does Joe Rogan. So I know. I take so it as a compliment. Um, I'm drinking that as a compliment. Rich roll. Yeah. Um, everybody says it tastes so good. And I'm like, nope, you all lie. I've had athletic greens a number of times over the last five years. And each time I think, okay, this time it's going to taste good. And it doesn't. And it's like $75 for. Oh, the price went up. Oh boy. Yeah. 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 Good for you. You have arrived. You're followed by Corinne Crabtree. You've got Athleta Greens wanting to sponsor you. This is like, talk about living your best life. I know. Somebody was like, somebody was like moaning about turning 40. And I was like, do you realize how good the fuck it 40s are? The fuck Mm -hmm. it 40s can be so freaking good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just, you just start figuring out and I'm just like, I'm just getting warmed up on learning how to say no. Like I'm struggling with saying no to something this week, this weekend. Like if it doesn't feel like a hell yes, it usually means no. And that's kind of a nice barometer that I've figured out for myself. And so I've got something and it's not a hell yes, but I still haven't said no to it. So like, I just, I still, everything's still a work in progress. Of course. I think there's something to be said for strategy too. And sometimes if it's not a hell yes right now, if you are looking at your life as a chess game for reaching some thing, I know that in your like Eckhart Tolle sort of Buddhist slash stoic vibe that maybe you wouldn't be looking at the destination, but it's, it's, I mean, we're humans, so there's always going to be something we're working towards, right? Mm-hmm. And there's strategy involved in that. My point is, is that maybe sometimes it's a strategy to just take a moment and understand how this thing is going to fit into the big chess game, totally. even if it's not a hell yes. I think that, I mean, I used to have a ton of time scarcity. I have a lot. Lo- I, I I mean, it's not gone, but it's better. 
and like not fretting about not getting stuff done and just realizing like today was not the day to get it done. Mm-hmm. And then like, it'll get done at some point, And then I giggle and I'm like, who knew today was the day it was going to get done. I didn't even see it coming, but it got done today. <laughs> like that's the coolest thing. <laughs> now I just like tickle myself with like, see, I couldn't have been, couldn't have been done two months ago because it needed to be done today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like this book club. This book club's going like in a million directions. It's because we have multivariate interests. Yeah, Chris Voss is he's so awesome. Like his book is so good. And I love he's I love that he's bootstrappy and I love that he's not from Harvard. And I love that he went to Harvard and he was like, Yeah, and mm-hmm. let me let me help you out more. And I love that he charges so much money for his consulting now because he's like, cause it's awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um can i tell you something about charging money so i have been fretting about something which is selling my share of this um surgery center so in the bylaws let me give you some context in the bylaws there was this recommendation that you needed to bring like a third of your outpatient volume to that facility, which I actually think is an unethical now looking back on it because people should have a choice. And if it just so happens that a, that a third of your patients don't choose that place, then you cannot. Well, and especially if they don't contract with the insurance, right? There's stuff out of your control. There was a, there was a lot of stuff out of my control. Like they said they were going to have, we have like a medical. um, specific for our hospital, for the children's hospital, like called Chalk Health Alliance. And they said they were going to accept Chalk Health Alliance and they never did. So really kind of like made me impotent with being able to bring my patients there. Anyway, long story short, since I separated, (laughs) see, it's not just a male word. Um, I um, separated from the group. So now my volume is like zero. And I said, okay, do I need to sell my share? They said, yes. Like I initiated all of this and I kept asking them over and over, what do I need to do? Give me guidance. How do I sell the share? Blah, 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 blah. And they kept saying, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. Well, finally I get this email from the administrator that says, okay, the board has approved the sale of your share to this doctor. And the Purchase price was $19,000 and the current valuation is $34,000. Usually the seller and the buyer arrive at a price between the two. So of course I took offense to that because I'm like, he's saying that because I'm a woman and blah, blah, blah. So I go off on this like tangent, but I talked to my own coach about it. And let me just read you. This is why I love her so much, but let me just read you what she said, because this is perfect. If you can indulge me. Any day. So I asked her the question, is this really how it works with investments? Buyer and seller negotiate sort of like buying or selling a house. Why wouldn't the price of the share just be the current value price? Or is this what happens when the seller is a woman? Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? She says, the answer is that the price of everything, even publicly traded stocks in companies like Coca-Cola or Amazon is based on supply and demand. Someone can tell you what the shares are quote unquote worth. They're worth $34,000, but are they? 
What the shares are actually worth is what a willing buyer is willing to pay to a willing seller in an arm's length transaction. That is the market price at any given moment. If there are multiple transactions happening at any given moment, they might not be all at the same price, even in a publicly traded stock with a quote-unquote published market price. What does this mean for you? You get what you negotiate. Someone telling you how this is quote usually work, how this usually works when that means taking less is probably not doing you any favors. They are inviting you not to think. They are inviting you to sell on autopilot. Don't do that. Instead, think about what makes sense. Why do they want this? Why do you want to sell? Do you want to sell an appreciating asset? Do they want you out more than you want out? Why do they want to buy more than you want to sell? It may be a lot more than 34K. Like, what a way to look at the whole problem from critical thinking. I love it. You know, and she's right. I love how she took it from like, it's either this or this to like erasing the lines that were drawn around. It's the black and white event. Yes. She's amazing. Cool. I know. So now what it's like made it more of a fun thing for me instead of this like the thing. And now I'm like, oh, wait. Okay. <clears throat> it's just turned it into a bit of a game. And that's the best. You, yeah. You go in with a, a totally different energy. You do. And anyway, I think that's transferable to what the book is about <clears throat> and how like really, like, even though it's kind of weird to say it, like anytime he's negotiating, it's kind of like a game for him. Yeah. You know? Totally. Here's why it's important to consider it that way is because the human brain loves to play a game mm -hmm. and the human brain does not like to do work. Mm -mm. Totally. Yeah. He offered 30, by the way. So I was like... How is this worth me like all of it? I really just want to be out. I want to be done Take with the it. 30. Yeah. I just want to be and done. Then he thinks he's winning. <laughs> you got way more than 19 and you're out. Yeah. Or draw it out for, you know, four grand, but I would argue four grand is not worth it. It's not worth my time. No. Good for you. Yeah. Super Keep fun. Going. I love it. So mm -hmm. I tell you about this other book. I don't think it can be a book club because it, this book was written in 1970 and I don't even know if it's published anymore. Did I tell you about mm -hmm. this book? Loves what happens when you let go of fear, something like that. Oh, well, you told me you were having like a fear uh, breakthrough moment of like clarity. Totally, totally a lot of fear coming, like the word fear coming at me in the universe. Oh, very bizarre i would like went down a rabbit hole and watched a ted talk about love a beautiful life is letting go of fear was the name of the ted talk and then the day after a patient gives me this book love is letting go of fear mm -hmm. and i'm like what's happening <laughs> and uh yeah just like you know under in thinking of like the hostage negotiation, right? Like he is negotiating with somebody who seems like he's a jerk and a murderer, but really it's a fearful person. Yeah. And like understanding it's all about fear and like fear drives us. And at the same time, we, we don't really want to be controlled by it. Right. 
And I think it's like in naming the naming their pain point is like naming their fear and seeing that a lot in, in medicine, right? Let alone how poorly we communicate with our patients because we speak a language that they don't speak and we don't know when our words aren't even hitting, right? Like they don't even know where their vulva or their bladder is. They think their belly, their right upper quadrant pain is their bladder, right? <laughs> and so it's like, we've got a language barrier in all circumstances and they're mm -hmm. fearful. So now you're trying to negotiate with somebody who's fear-based. Like if you can't acknowledge that and like try to address that, like that's the root a lot of the times, I think. I mean, yes, absolutely. Primal risk, primal safety, everything revol like it's baked into our DNA. It's the reason we exist today is because we have mechanisms in place that address when we feel primarily at risk, right? Mm -hmm. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, we survive. Then the next generation gets to take their run at the slip and slide and all the same shit happens again over and over and over for millions of years, right? So now in 2023, we have, I've been using this term of like uh, 21st century tigers. Like we don't really have tigers coming at us anymore. The 21st century tigers are the right upper quadrant pain that you think is your bladder because what else could it be? Like I didn't take anatomy. Um, so it's, you know what I'm saying? It's the 21st century tiger. So of course, everything in our lives revolves around primal risk and primal safety. So the way in which we can communicate with people can either create primal safety or it can worsen primal risk. And the more safety that's created, the better, because it's, it allows you to come to like a mutually agreeable conclusion. Everybody yeah. wins again. Yeah. I just, I think it's, we're, we're not taught how to communicate of like, because we forget, like people don't speak our language in the clinic. They don't speak our medicine risk benefit. I've done this a thousand times. It's not your bladder. Like they don't speak any of that language. All they're, they're just afraid. Maybe this is expensive. Maybe they do want surgery to fix the problem. Maybe they really don't want surgery. Like understanding that first. Mm -hmm. So like, I've just started being upfront. Like, what are your hopes today? Are your hopes that you're thinking surgery is the answer or your hopes to like not have surgery? And like a lot of the times they're like, I really hope I don't need surgery. And then my brain's like, you realize you're talking to a surgeon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, how'd you, how'd you get here if that's the underlying like hope of, for you? And I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's not talk about, I'm not going to waste my time talking about surgery a lot. And this is an elective sort of, you know, yeah. bladder leakage, prolapse, whatever. If like your goal is like, never will I ever have surgery for this. It's good for me to know up front. Yeah. This is something that happened the other day in my own house. My dog developed a small bowel obstruction by eating a tennis ball. I saw that Jessica, yes. oh what my did God. she eat? A tennis ball. She chewed up a tennis ball. Some of it was found in her poop and some of it was not because it was stuck in her jejunum. Anyway, it was as if the exorcist was like happening in my den with was our family room with all of our furniture and everything. There was fetid vomit everywhere. It was so bad. Yeah. All the furniture got sent to the dump. It was really bad. 
the rug, everything. Anyway, so my husband takes her in. She has an x-ray. It shows that she has a partial small bowel obstruction. This is at like 1030 in the morning. And I was you like, an x-ray with a tennis ball on it. Well, they couldn't see what the foreign body was. They could just see like the, you know, they could see the dilated proximal bowel and stomach. So when the vet was saying she was on speakerphone and, and she said, well, she has a, a partial small bowel obstruction. And I immediately, my mind is like, this dog's going to need an X lap. They monitor all day. She was really sick. Like she was dehydrated. She was probably in shock and all this stuff. She was really sick anyway. So they try to hydrate her all day. And at the end of the day, she's not better because they weren't sure if she's going to pass it or not. And they send her to the, um, they send her to the, uh, you know, overnight hospital, they get a repeat x-ray and an ultrasound. And it looks like she has a worsening small bowel obstruction. And so then again, I'm like, all right, it's now 10 o'clock and this dog is going to end up needing an X lap. So of course at midnight, the dog needs an X lap and my husband's freaking out. And I'm like, this is a good thing. Like surgery fixes stuff. <laughs> like they're going to fix it. This isn't a problem. This is a very good solution. And he's freaking out, like freaking out. And so anyway, the reason I'm telling this story is, is it really illustrates what you're saying when somebody's not medical and they have no idea. And what it sounds like is this dog's going to die. And I'm like, no, surgery is the answer to all things. <laughs> Definite. But I think it had, I just said at 1030, you know what, honey, I think, I think when he's going to need surgery for this and it's going to be fine. They'll take care of it. No big deal. Everything is going to be okay. In really simple language, it would have saved 24 hours of extreme stress. For this man. Dude, what are you going to do? Do you have to hide all tennis balls for life now? Like, can this dog yeah. be trusted? No. Can't she be can't trusted trust. anymore. No. You're going to no. eat stuff. She's a lab. She's just talk about DNA based tendencies. She just has to have something in her mouth always. So we just have to get the, the vet did say um, raw hides are better. We were under the impression raw hides were not better because dogs can choke on raw hides. The vet said dogs typically don't choke. They typically cough it up. But then if they swallow a rawhide, it's digestible. So it doesn't end up becoming a small bowel obstruction. But she said she's retained. It I had a woman vet at the first place. I had a woman surgeon vet at the second place. It was awesome. And she got paid far more for this x lap than I got paid for any elbow I ever fixed in my life. The total bill was like $8,000. Um, yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. you can't ever. Are you taking out vet insurance now? Well, we are now. Yeah. <laughs> if we can get it still. Anyway, in the total bill now that I just purchased a new rug and all new furniture is probably even higher. But anyway, I bet it looks nice. the point there was a point there, which is communication between people who are terrified and us. There's a way to create primal safety in mm -hmm. those interactions yep. and I didn't do it with my own husband. <laughs>
I was thinking like, this is not the topic to start 10 minutes to the hour, but like, I was thinking about like my chronic pain patients or my like recurrent UTI patients who actually seem to want me to get agitated and like stressed and like thinking this is a huge, like they want me to kind of match where their level of energy is almost to the point of like getting upset that like, I don't care if I don't match it. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody else has this same thing. And I've like been chewing on that because I've been paying attention to it of like recurrent UTIs is not something I get worked up about because it's, I've been doing it for 20 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And them almost wanting me to be there. And it's like, that's not, that's just going to help you for me to match your energy in this situation. It doesn't. In fact, it makes it worse. Yeah. It cements in their brain that it's a big deal. Yeah. And like cemented that it's a big deal. It will be so much harder for them to move, like get better. Totally. Yeah. I just, I've like been picking up on that of like, oh, they want me to match their energy and I'm not. And it doesn't mean I don't care. It just means like, I don't see people die from this condition and they do get better and we'll get you there. Yeah. And I think that there's a way to create primal safety in that situation. Right. And for you to, um, there's a term for this. It's um, escaping me at the moment. It's um, what is it? It's a really common term. I use it all the time when we, when we are regulating our nervous system. So the other person comes is able to regulate it's co-regulation, co-regulation. And we have mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think you're doing them a service by maintaining your, yourself. Well, he talks about it in the book as the late night DJ voice. Yes. And I think what he's saying is co, you know, getting the co-regulation, like getting them to come down. Jess, I think you can answer this question. How's everyone used the negotiation tactics in the book off the cuff? I have a planned negotiation. If I'm in person, I tend to get angry and it's harder to use the techniques. Yeah. Jess talked earlier in this hour about how she used it to negotiate a signing bonus. Like specifically the like, how am I supposed to do that question? Yeah, it was so easy. Um, I signed a contract with a company to do per diem work out of town and they didn't have um, any travel expenses worked into the contract. And I just said, I said, well, this is going to require a lot of travel for me. I estimated it would be about $2,000 a month, maybe $1,500 to $2,000 a month for the travel. And I said, how am I supposed to do that? And they just came back with, well, how about a $20,000 signing bonus? Like we, per our company policy, we cannot increase the per diem, but we can give you a signing bonus. And I was like, sold. That's it. It was as easy as that. It was, how am I supposed to do that? (laughs) I think the other tip that, you know, we had talked about earlier was if you notice going in angry, you know, doing work beforehand to be like, this is going to be fun, or I'm not sure how this is going to work. I get to play, like just going in with a different mindset to kind of open up the possibility of using these techniques. Because if you go in angry, like these techniques, I think I always have to still remember them because I'm practicing. I wouldn't well, say I've solidified these techniques in my day-to-day at this point. Yes. And even the very notion of using techniques indicates like a strategy of some kind. 
So if you're angry, my guess would be more likely the hindbrain is in control, right? This like stress, jacked up hindbrain type activity in the strategy part, using techniques part is going to be more of the, of the prefrontal cortex, which means that having neuro, neuro regulation um, and peripheral nervous system regulation will just help though that part of the brain be more active, more able to strategize. Okay, I'm thinking more along the lines of an unexpected negotiation, like, oh, rescheduling a delayed flight at the airport, or most recently for me, an argument with the back manager over their error. For the former, I um, would probably need a little bit more information because I I don't really feel like flights can be negotiated, so to speak. There's either a flight or there isn't. Um, so maybe more context would be good there. But for an argument over the bank manager over their error, I have an idea about this. What do you think, Kelly? Well, I think if, if it's an error, that, that like, truthfully, they're like, you have negative 10,000 in the bank and you're like, actually, no, like it was a true error. Like no point in getting upset at them. It just is going to get reconciled. Right. And, and trying to figure out like to preserve the relationship and just to get it done. And they're having a shitty day too. Like it's not about winning or being right. And I think a lot of times in the surgery training, it's really about us being right all the time. And I think that backfires in a lot of our communications, just the way we were groomed to be right. Okay. Here's more context for the flight question, not pay for the flight, get points or voucher or, or something for the inconvenience. Oh yeah. So here we go. It's like, oh, okay. Um, this delay, like if, if you're speaking with, um, say the ticket agent or whatever, it's like, you can use the, how am I supposed to do that? Question. Also, the repeating the three words back, keep them talking. <laughs> Might work. And like, you know, I think Chris Voss in this book, he's like, you know, Chris Voss can now get like free shit everywhere because he's just so freaking good at this. But it's like, there's not always some some like Easter egg to find, right? At least yeah. that's my opinion. Because, because then to me, it's like me feeling like I need to get something extra because I should know how to negotiate it. And I think that feels off to me. I see what you're saying. I think that the airline industry, though, has a track record of compensating people for things, depending upon what the thing actually is. I don't know about like just a basic flight delay, but certainly the airlines have compensated people in the past for things. I've received compensation for things. It's not huge. Might be like, you know, free drinks for Southwest. <laughs> the next thing. <laughs> so I was trying to fly from Denver to Seattle a month ago and a Russian volcano exploded. This did not make the news because it's at like 10,000 feet and not on the ground. A Russian volcano exploded and put a whole bunch of ash in the air at about 10,000 feet. 
So like Seattle's not affected by this. They're having a fine day, but like airplanes can't fly because it gets in their jets and they'll crash basically. And so they grounded all the planes into Seattle. And so I get on the on the, the phone with Alaska Airlines and they're like, yeah, the, well, the next, this is Sunday. I have, I have cases Monday in the surgery center. They're like, our next available flight's Wednesday. And so my brain is like, what the hell am I going to do in Denver till Wednesday? Can I drive? Blah, blah, blah. And my technique was like, I was just super sweet. I just kept her on the phone. We just kept trying to figure it out. And then she got me a flight the next day via through Portland. And it was like, just be sweet. Keep her on the phone. Try, try to figure out what else we can do. Wednesday seems really far away. What else can we do? And like, maybe it was dumb luck. I don't know. But had I been pissed and got off the phone with her, I would have missed my opportunity to have her figure out taking me through Portland can get me home tomorrow. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the uh, on the getting angry. Jess has no idea what the feeling of anger is, so we, we got to give her a pass on this one. She's a nine. Please excuse her. <laughs> she, know, she knows not how we feel. I know not how you feel. I'm like a lab puppy. Don't give her a tennis ball. <laughs> Don't give me a tennis ball. Um, but yeah, no, for me, anger is, is, a, is usually was, I would say at this point, the first emotion. I'm very used to it. I'm very comfortable with anger. I'm not afraid of anger. I'm not afraid of anger in other people. Like I'm very comfortable with this, but it's usually not a superpower, right? So uh, again, I just read this book from 1970 called like Love is Letting Go of Fear or something like that. And he's like, one of the things you can ask yourself, and I think using this as like a regulating technique is like, I want to feel peace right now over anything. Right now I want peace over anything. And if I can trigger that and when I'm feeling the anger, I realize anger is not actually what I want to lead with because I know it's not a superpower. It's very, anger is very threatening to other people. I might not understand that, but I know that now. And so realizing like, truthfully, I want peace more than anything. I love the feeling of peace. And just using that sentence to regulate of like, I want peace right now, what does help me in like calming down the anger. Other people will say like, you know, taking a deep breath, blah, 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 all these other body. I can't remember to breathe when I'm angry because part of anger is not breathing. <laughs> so, but to me, like the overarching, like, I want peace right now. Is this worth it? Is this worth using? Like anger, I now understand is like a nuclear bomb for most people, right? And it's like, is right now the time to use my nuclear bomb? No. Usually the answer is no. But, uh, just understanding that like getting it, it, but it, for people who lead with anger, it's like breathing. They're very comfortable with it. And I have to do a lot of work to not lead with anger. And a lot of like triggers for me were like, this should be, this shouldn't be happening right now. I don't have time for this. They're doing it wrong. Like all those thoughts for me lead to anger or can lead to anger. So realizing like anger will come up often in our life if all of those thoughts lead to anger for you. And so realizing like regulating is like, I want peace right now. P peace is always an option. I do have something to add, even if I don't understand anger. And that is most of the time 
there is time. And so if you know that you're going to like fly off the handle, then walk away. Even if it's for one minute, just say, excuse me, I'm going to, I'll be back in a moment. Go to the bathroom. Like, okay, I'll be back in a second to work this out. I need to pee. Go to the bathroom, get yourself calmed down and come back. Like, unless you're in the OR and somebody's actively bleeding out, there is time. There's time to just step away, collect yourself and come back. Yeah. Another technique for me, like on the phone. So people would be on the phone. They called me for whatever thing. And like, I used to like interrupt them because I this shouldn't be happening. They shouldn't, they know not to buy like all my thoughts. Right. And this just goes into coaching one-on-one, but now I just sit on the phone and they talk and I just listen to my thoughts. Like it's a second radio program that's happening. And so I'm like listening to them. I'm listening to my thoughts and I'm just kind of like hanging out, listening to everybody talk. <laughs> like instead of me responding, right. I'm like, I'm not responding because me responding to them is not helpful for anybody. So I just let my, my brain does this. They talk like this and they, then they stop talking. And then I say something like, it's, a, it's been a game changer for me. And I'm certainly much less rude to people because I just let them talk now and listen to my own dialogue and laugh at everybody, basically. But that took years, my friend. Welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just in case anybody wonders why that's not happening on a Tuesday for them, that took me, took me years. All right, team, that was a great book report. I have an idea for the next one. Okay. Let me just say this real quick. Um, it's this one. Because you're learning how to not have fear. This is actually the gift of fear. This is excellent. This is all about personal safety, which I think is really, really useful for all women. I think it'll be good because it'll it'll round out my study of fear. Yeah. Gift what of fear by Gavin DeBecker. Survival signals that protect us from violence. I love it. It's really good. Okay, sweet. Thank All you. All right. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Pilates, I hope that helped. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, Jess. Bye.